So the deal with talent is to basically ignore it. Just forget about it. Just stop stop using the word. It's a social myth that we've been sort of throwing around irresponsibly now for goodness knows how long. It's a virus in culture and it's a virus in your mind. And when you've learned something to a high level and you've gone through the process, <laughs> come and tell me then how you feel about talent. So we're going to talk, cover the topic of talent today. And I just want to, to stir you a little bit by asking if you've ever heard the terms natural, natural ability or the term God-given talent. Have you ever been told that you lack the inherent capacity to learn something? Have you ever learned that you haven't got any talent for something and that you should just give up? Have you ever told this to yourself? Have you ever said to yourself, I don't have the talent for this, so I'm not even going to try. I, I wasn't born with the ability to do this thing, so I'm going to stop. Basically, the, the idea that we can have innate talent for a certain sport or pursuit is one of the biggest holes in our conventional wisdom about learning. And it's not, it's not only that, in a factual sense, it's wrong. It's not that. It's the fact that if you believe this, you're never going to be able, you're never going to get good at anything. And we'll, we'll cover why that is. It's, it's an extraordinarily disempowering belief. And so that's why when we're talking about the mental game of learning, this is the first thing that we need to talk about because it's a serious hindrance to your ability to, to learn and to learn effectively. So let's cover about the idea that ability comes inbuilt. So basically from a very young age, we're indoctrinated with the idea that you either have talent for a certain area or you don't. So you have a maths brain or you don't. You have an eye for art or you don't. So just like children in communist China were made to learn the little red book and then recite it every day and then they became lifelong Mao sympathizers, on a lesser level, on a smaller level, you've been indoctrinated by everyone around you with the idea that talent is innate and it's inbuilt. And if you don't have it from birth, you're never going to have it. This goes back to Francis Galton, who was actually a cousin of Charles Darwin, a half-cousin. And he basically, using Darwin's theory as a scientific basis or a potential scientific basis, he proposed the idea that ability in a certain pursuit was hereditary. So you inherited it from your parents. And so it's, it's not, it's, it goes into science and philosophy, this stuff. It's not just in our culture. What happens is when we look at the best of the best doing their thing on TV or on YouTube nowadays or in a stadium or wherever it is, whoever it is that we admire in a certain field, when we see them doing their thing, it looks like, it looks like, this is the illusion of it, it looks like they have something that we don't. It looks like they're magical in some way. It looks like they're almost of a different species. And we, we talk about them like this. So we say things like, ah, oh, they're so talented. Uh, dancing is in her blood. Or he was born to paint or he has a fantastic football or soccer brain. What you've got to realize about this is that high level performers only look like this to us. They only have like this divine uh, aura 
because they've been immersed in their craft for so long. And they basically, they've developed abilities that we don't have. And they notice things that we don't notice. But it's not because they were born with them. It's really because that their entire life is dedicated to this thing. And we're going to talk a bit more about this as to why, a bit more as to why they seem so godlike. What basically happens is in, in when you're immersed in a field, you start to notice patterns, the standard patterns of things that happen. Like if you're a chess player, <laughs> chess is a very complex game and there's a lot of possible games in chess, but patterns emerge. And the more immersed you are in chess, the more you realize that the, the patterns are there and you begin to quickly recognize these patterns much quicker than someone who hasn't been immersed in the sport has and therefore you can react to them and your your whole thinking about the game is in terms of these patterns. It's not in terms of individual pieces, individual movements. It moves up a level and therefore you start. it starts to look like you're seeing things that other people aren't, which is true in a sense, but it's not because you were born with it. It's because you've developed that ability. Janet Starks put, puts this very nicely. Who's a, she's a professor of kinesiology. She says that skilled performers seem to have all the time in the world. Recognition of familiar scenarios and the chunking of perceptual information into meaningful holes and, and patterns speeds up processes. So what she's saying is that immersion in a field, it gives you, it, it changes the way you look at it and it changes the way you live it. You start responding to patterns and holes rather than individual pieces. And Matthew Syed talks about this in the context of Roger Federer being able to return a serve where most people would never, a, a top quality tennis serve, the average person has no chance of returning it because it's far too fast. Matthew Syed says, Federer did not come into this mortal world with knowledge of where to look or how to efficiently extract information on a service return, any more than chess players have innate board game memory skills. So what's happening with the, the high performer is that they've been immersed in it for so long that they start seeing patterns, they start to look for the little bits, the little clues, the little bits of information that gives them a clue as to what is coming next. And then they're responding to that and their whole knowledge about the game is built on those holes and patterns and structures. And it starts to seem like they're doing something magical. We need to talk about the iceberg illusion. Uh, and this is really relate related to talent. And when we talk about famous, or well, when we talk about high performers and we when we look at them, what's going on? It's the iceberg illusion. Basically what we're seeing is, like if we see, I don't know, Tiger Woods, well, it's a bit out of date now, but let's talk about Tiger Woods because he's like the most famous golfer ever. When we see him hitting this amazing shot, what we're actually seeing is we're seeing the culmination of a of goodness knows how many ye uh, years and hours of solid effort. We're not seeing all the the days and the weeks and the months of fairly mundane practice that goes into that. What we do is we see a short glimpse of them and they pull out this amazing thing and we say, oh my God, they're so talented. Oh my God, look at that. And no, no, they're... We're seeing the very, the thin layer. Think think back, what's going on behind that amazing shot? What's going on is 
a lot, a lot, a lot of failure and a lot of practice and a lot of repetition. And we just see the, the tiny top bit. And especially on TV where everything is, it needs to be entertaining, it needs to be sort of dramatic. We focus on this little tiny piece on the top and we just completely forget about what's going on behind it. And of course, if someone did actually come into this world and first time they picked up a club could swing it like that and just pull out this amazing shot, maybe they would be. But the fact is that that is not what happens in the real world. Let's talk about the genetic delusion. So this is kind of the delusion or Francis Galton's theory and why it isn't true. And I'm not going to go into, you know, I'm not going to get scientific and biological here more than I need to, because it's this is about learning. It's about empowering you. It's not about pulling apart scientific and biological stuff uh, in essence. But this reminds me of Greta Thunberg a little bit. It's a bit of a, might seem a bit of a strange comparison, but Greta always says that we've taken our abuse of the planet too far and things need to change, or that's the spirit of her message at least. I'm here to say that we've taken genetics too far. We try and use it as our explanation for everything. We try and use it as an explanation for when we're going to pass away. We try and use it as an explanation for what we're good at and what we're not good at. And if you actually, if you put a little bit of thought into this, the, the idea that genetics determines what we're good at and what we're not good at, I'm not going to go into all the, the sort of the, the evidence and all this, but if you, are, if you think about it, it's actually an insane idea. It really is insane. So we know something like, we know that things like blue eyes and blonde hair are transmitted, transmitted genetically, and there's actually genes that determine that. But... A tennis gene, a chess gene, a gene that makes you automatically good at something or inclined to something. It's, it's, has anyone discovered such a gene? And if it was this way, why do we have universities? Why do we have school? Why even bother going to school? If you're good, if it's passed on to you genetically, well, why do we need to even bother? If your gene makes you good, why even bother? If, if the skills that your parents have acquired get passed on in your genes, then why even bother why even bother learning? Why even bother trying to get good at something else? And the, the fact is that we do not live our lives like this. Culture and society do not function around this idea. So I want you to forget about the idea that things come in your genes because they don't. And... If you actually think about it as well, there's nothing natural or instinctual about getting good. Like if you think of your favorite pursuit in life or the, something you've become really good at, there was nothing natural about it. It's not like, you know, human beings, human beings do a lot of things naturally. We socialize, we talk, we eat, we drink water. All these things are pretty natural and they keep us alive and they keep us functioning as human beings. A lot of the sports and fields of knowledge that we have, there's nothing natural about them. And they feel extremely unnatural when you first get into them. So this genes idea is really damaging. And we're going to further debunk this right now when we talk about child prodigies. So let's talk about some examples of people who think people consider to be child prodigies who actually, they weren't child prodigies at all. They weren't gods 
you know, gifts from the gods, as people like to think. Charles Darwin, just talked about Charles Darwin. He's a prime example of this. So he's a, you know, one of the most important figures in science. And yet, although that would stir us to think or push us to think that he has some sort of natural talent for science, by his own standards, he was quite an ordinary boy. Um, he had a huge passion for collecting biological specimens and he got the opportunity to go to South America on a boat for a few years to, to develop that passion. And after spending five years doing that, he then had to study in universities to give his theory, to give the theory that he had come up with a, a more scientific grounding so that it would have, it would gain weight in scientific circles. And he spent the rest of his life developing his theory of evolution. So it was an ordinary boy. He didn't have talent. He just had the passion and he followed it and followed it. And he spent his entire life developing his theory. It wasn't like he was a 10 year old boy and he suddenly came up with this theory out of nowhere, like a present from the gods. It didn't work like that. Mozart is the, the example that most people give or the example that seems to be the most common, the one that people know about. When Mozart was six years old, he used to perform on stage for the European aristocracy and he used to dazzle them with his uh, musical abilities. And people look at this and they think, well, he's just somehow he knew how to play piano when he was young. If you actually look at Mozart's life, you'll see that this is a fallacy. Mozart's dad was actually a famous composer in his own right. He was a performer. And he was an accomplished music teacher who was who, had, who basically created his own way of teaching music or learning music, his own pedagogy for music. And Mozart started learning with his dad, an accomplished performer and music teacher, when he was very young, when he was something like two years old. And a psychologist called Michael Howe estimated that Mozart, by the time he was six, had practiced 3,500 hours on the piano. So just to give you an idea what 3,500 hours, imagine one work day, a seven hour work day with an hour, an hour break. That's like your standard work day. 500 of those spent playing the piano. 500 times seven is 3,500. 500 of those days spent playing the piano before he was six years old. Think about that. What were you doing when you were six years old? I don't know about you, but I was—I <laughs> certainly wasn't spending three thousand five hundred hours on one thing. So, the Mozart idea is 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 actually proof that talent isn't uh, that talent doesn't exist. It's it's proof of it. It's not evident. It's not evidence that talent you know comes in built. It's actually the exact opposite of that. And the fact that it's genetically transmitted, you could say, well, oh, his dad was a pianist. Well, no, but his dad was an accomplished teacher as well. So you can't say, well, it was genetic because that's there's way more factors than that, even if it was genetic, which I don't think that is the case. <laughs> Another thing about Mozart is that he didn't actually create any real authentic, um, fresh music until he'd been composing for 10 years. 
a lot of his earlier work, according to music music experts, was all basically reworks of other pieces. He didn't come up with anything original until 10 years on the job of trying to compose his own music. And a study on 70 composers reveals that only three of them, out of 70 great composers, only three of them produced anything of note before they hit the 10-year mark in in composing. And the ones that did needed nine years. So we're talking nine or 10 years here to create something meaningful. And we're going to come back to that point later on in this course. Another one, Einstein. People say that Einstein must be some sort of, you know, <laughs> I don't know, shaman or wizard. Uh, no, Einstein started doing mental experiments, mental scientific experiments when he was 16. And it was 10 years later that he came up with his theory of relativity. So again, long period of immersion. Tiger Woods was the exact same. So people think Tiger Woods was some sort of child prodigy. He wasn't. He actually started playing golf at age two. His dad was teaching him to play golf at age two. And by the time, you know, 10 years later, he'd clocked up the famous 10,000 hours of dedicated practice. So the child prodigy is really an illusion. And actually, in, instead of being proof that talent exists and that it's genetic or it's, you know, given to us at birth somehow, it's actually they're, they're the proof of the exact opposite. They're, the, they're proof that if you put, hours, put the hours in, you're going to get good at something. It doesn't matter what age you are. And I think these, these prodigies are actually very good examples of, they're good models for us as learners. They're good models to see how it's done. <laughs> All of these child prodigies have thousands of hours of practice when they're very young, something that most people do not have. They have the opportunities that many people don't have. Like who has a, a dad who's a composer and music teacher? Very, very few. <laughs> and I want to also talk now about Laszlo Polgar. Laszlo, or let's say Polgar, his surname. Polgar literally raised his children to be chess superstars. He wasn't a chess player. He was just a psychologist who was interested in this stuff. And he basically wanted to defunct the theory of uh, talent, or the talent theory of expertise, it's called. The the idea that expertise is determined by talent. What he did was he basically trained all his daughters from a young age, at different times, from a young age, for many, 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 many hours in chess. And every single one of them became world-class chess champions so these are this is a an example of a man who chose who chose to make his daughters good at something and chose to expose them to a certain thing for many hours and see what happened and lo and behold they they became some of the best players that ever existed in chess so there's some more evidence that it really isn't these the the greatest people are just practice uh, junkies. They're just exposed for a lot of time in the right conditions, and they have an enormous amount of practice under their belt. So Polgar used his newborns 
as lab rats in his mission to debunk the, th the talent theory of expertise. He gave them all thousands of hours of practice in their youth. They've now broken records, they've become world champions, chess grandmasters, etc, etc. And they looked like child prodigies. They were actually just ordinary children raised to be superstars. So, how do you actually free yourself from the talent myth? Because if you've been around people who believe in talent, the idea that talent determines everything, it's going to be there in your mind and it's going to hold you back. Like it, It's just inevitable because it's so disempowering, this belief. Well, let me give you an example of my life where I think that I'm, I just, I'm talented for something. Art is my thing, right? So there's many areas that I've practiced and I've got good at in life, but art is the one thing that I just have this limiting belief around. I have this idea that I'm just not artistic, that I'm just not born to paint somehow, that I'm just, somehow I'm just not cut out for it. But when I actually reflect on my life in art, like my art career, <laughs> my, my only practice in art amounts to slapping random colours on bits of paper when I was a child, a few art classes at school that I wasn't interested in, and not much else. I've not had any classes as an adult, I've not, had any, not read any books about it, I've received no instruction, I never practice it. So how could I possibly be good at it? It's not that I'm inherently bad at it. I've just never done it. How could I possibly be good at art? You will have this own thing for yourself. So look at this, look at the areas that you've tried to learn in your life or that you have learned. And do you say things to yourself like, I don't have a brain for maths or I'm a numbers guy and I don't do language, I don't do literature and all this. Or French was never my thing. Things like this. If you actually reflect on these areas a little bit, you'll realise that you never give yourself the chance to be good at them. And so you're, that's why you're not good at them. And if you tried, maybe you would succeed. The problem with believing that talent is everything is is that you basically won't try. You won't try to get good. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And the, the thing about self-fulfilling prophecies is that always they are they're doubtful in their truth. And it's a shame because I look around and I see people who they, they have an idea of something that they want to try. They have some idea of a new hobby, a new language or an instrument. And they just tell themselves from the start, I can't do this. I'm not like I'm not cut out for this. I don't have the talent. And it's really sad. So look out for this, look out for this in yourself. And yeah, you have to be very careful with how you think about what you're capable of. And now that you know this, you can really try your hand at whatever you want. There's much more to mindset than this, but this is a huge part of it. Here's a quote that I really like. Extensive research has shown that there is scarcely a single top performer in any complex task who has circumvented the 10 years of hard work necessary to reach the top. If you research any sports person or artist or writer or whoever you admire, you'll realise that they dedicate their life to this thing. 
and really they'd have to be sort of they'd have to have some sort of ailment or disability or brain damage not to be good at it because that's their life and that's what they do that's who they are what the greats have is they have an inclination and a curiosity and they're willing to follow those to the end no matter what happens and they have this persistence that we're also going to talk about this doesn't mean that hard work alone will get you there sometimes things like good luck plays a part having a dad that is a composer and teacher plays a part where you are in a certain historical time plays a part where who you know also plays a part in what you're going to do with that talent but the actual building up of knowledge and expertise itself isn't limited to those things those things will help you say become famous if you know the right people might help you become famous but they're not unless they give you coaching or they 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 somehow give you tips on your practice they're not actually going to change your level of expertise in any way so the deal with talent is to basically ignore it just forget about it just stop stop using the word it's a social myth that we've been sort of throwing around irresponsibly now for goodness knows how long it's a virus in culture and it's a virus in your mind and when you've learned something to a high level and you've gone through the process <laughs> come and tell me then how you feel about talent 